You're listening to the Whole Vineyard Podcast. To find out more about the Whole Vineyard Church, go to wholevineyard.co.uk. Good morning, church. I'm here to read the, do the Bible reading for this morning, and it will be taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, from verse 32 all the way to 41. Yeah, I think 42, okay. So Mark 14 from verse 32. They went to a place, sorry, my name is Mercy. I think I've said that already. <laughs> they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not I, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayal. Amen. Good morning, everyone. So... He didn't say anything, but Josh led this morning with a broken finger. How impressive was that? Let's give him a round of applause. He messaged me yesterday saying, I'm at the surgery and uh, I think I've broken my finger. That's commitment. I just think that's amazing. Better Josh with a broken finger than me without a broken finger leading us this morning. So we're going to be in the Gospels for the remainder of the year, and primarily in the Gospel Mark, but we will be dipping into, uh, into the other Gospels. And uh, the big picture, as I talked about in our vision series, is that we sense that God is calling us to be a Jesus people, to inspire a Jesus movement in our time. And the main premise is this, we, we want to learn how to follow Jesus in our modern culture in 21st century Britain. And Jesus is out and about even today. He's not just in church. He's out and about through Hull and uh, our world. And he's saying, will you come? Will you come and follow me and do the things that I do in our world? And we want to be a church that is mission focused, that is outward looking. We believe in a church where the church leaves the building and gets to engage in our world. And we are a people who are wanting and seeking to proclaim 
and to demonstrate the gospel, whether we're at work, at home, with our neighbors, at the gym, uh, at Slimming World, taking our kids to ballet class, wherever we are, that we would be Jesus to the world around us. And we believe this will happen in three ways, primarily three ways. Firstly, pursuing the presence of God and being with Jesus. So learning how to spend time with him. Secondly, practicing counterformation by becoming like Jesus. If we're gonna be like Jesus, that means we will be different to the world around us and we've gotta have courage to do that and how does that look in our time and in our day. And thirdly, living on daily, not weekly or monthly or just uh, an evangelistic outreach once a year, but daily being the church on mission by doing what Jesus did. And this year, it'll be broken up into kind of mini-series like we've got here, and one-off talks, we'll be diving into the gospel text. So we want to encourage you just to bring your Bibles, bring uh, the the Mark books we gave you with the notepads, and uh, we're going to be looking at Jesus. So we're going to be starting today a four-week series called Sunday is Coming. As we approach Easter, we want to look at some of the final moments of Jesus' life and um, you know it's been a pretty full-on season for us as a church Um, one of the things which you can't buy which is a gift to us is we have momentum real momentum and growth among us and God is doing amazing things and you know with Jesus we love to look at the spectacular we love to look at the 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 miracles and the mountaintop experiences and all the stuff that just makes you go wow. But I wonder if starting today we can spend some time as a church looking at the the life of being a disciple and life of Jesus isn't always full of the spectacular. It's about real life. Uh, It isn't always full of mountaintop moments. And so we need a faith for the valleys. We need to be Christians in season and out of season when things are going well and things are going really, really tough. And if you've been a Christian any longer than a day, you'll realize that this world isn't perfect and that we will have moments and days and seasons of struggle. So we need a both and faith. We need a faith for when we're weak, a faith of depth, a faith which is marked by humility and a faith for when times are really tough. In fact, I've often found this is that when we step out in faith um, in new ways and exciting times is that we have an enemy who seeks to thwart that momentum and steal and kill and destroy the good stuff that he's doing. Um, I was met with some church leaders this week and uh, I was sharing about our vision and the Hope Center and um, our giving day last week and they were so excited for us. And um, I'm like, yeah, that's the blessing, but you don't realize the other side of the coin. If you saw my inbox for the last seven days, (laughs) you'd realize that uh, with the blessing comes buffeting and problems and trial and difficulty. And so we need to have our foundations which are deep and sure and we need to be alert and on guard that the enemy doesn't like what's going on here. 
And so we need to have the tools and the wisdom to navigate this. And I've often found this is true in life, in the Christian walk of being a disciple, and I've tried to live by this posture, and I've just kind of got this little grid up on the screen, is that, first of all, God will often give you a promise. We find his promises in the word, but also you may sense a prophetic promise of what God is speaking to us about it. But the moment we step into promise is we get a problem. And the enemy will seek to try and steal that promise, or the Lord allows a testing and a trial to see, look, are we really, really depending and trusting on God or on our feelings or emotions? And then we've got to kind of ride through that and God is looking for maturing us through perseverance. And then from perseverance, when we come through that, we realize there's provision from God and then finally perspective. The perspective goes something like this, oh, God knew what he was doing all along. <laughs> it's like, oh, right, yeah, okay. He always knows what he's doing, and he's calling us to press in. And so in the lead-up to the cross, we have this amazing moment. It's one of the most incredible and insightful passages in all of Scripture, Gethsemane. This was a regular meeting point for Jesus for his quiet times, but also to hang out with his friends. This was his kind of place of retreat. It was his pit stop, if you like, and it took place after the Last Supper and on his way to being uh, betrayed and arrested. And so it just makes me think, let's just pause there. If Jesus needs pit stops, then I think we could do with one. I wonder if you have a hiding place. I try and get a hiding place with a family of six. It's difficult, because at least one of my children will find me somewhere in the garden. But I think physically we all need a hiding place, a secret place that we go to, where we can shut the door and we can have these moments with the Father. Those moments are a place of weakness, they're a place of strength. Jesus always went to a garden, to the wilderness, to be strengthened. And we need that. And the first thing that strikes me as we read this passage is the reality of the oppression of Jesus' soul. Something we as Christians and the church don't like to talk about a lot, but we need to. The oppression of the soul of our Savior. The word Gethsemane, the place, means oil press in Aramaic. And this is really important. It's an ancient olive grove, and they had this giant, and I mean giant, pestle and mortar. It was amazing. And the olives would go in, and those olives would be crushed. And then out of this pestle and mortar comes the oil, and there would always be oil used for three things. First of all, something you can find in Tesco called extra virgin olive oil. It didn't just come out 10 years ago. There'd be oil for lamps and medicines and then also oil which would form ingredients for soap. So three purposes came out of the pressing. 
Now, it's interesting as a parallel in this text, three times Jesus goes to prayer. And in between those three times, he goes and sees his friends. And each time he went for prayer, to pray and to gain encouragement and support from his, from his mates there in the garden. There was the successive weight that was crushing Jesus again and again. Like those olives and the, where it produced the oil, three times you sense the weight of what was going to happen to Jesus lay upon him as he was pressed and crushed and squeezed time and time again. In Luke's gospel, because Luke was a doctor, he, he knows about these things. He talks about Jesus sweating drops of blood, which as we know is a, a real thing that can happen. It's a medical thing that when the stress is so much, sweat blood. So Christ here, the creator of the world, is pressed and oppressed with the anticipatory weight of the cross. And this is why, and I say this in parenthesis, as a church pastor, is this is why we reject a liberal gospel that seems to make light of the power and the enormity of sin and minimize the consequences of sin. Wherever sin is minimized, the cross is trivialized. We will never understand the wonder and the glory of the cross and the grace and the love of God without understanding the weight of sin. Amen. If we ever try and minimize it, look here at Jesus, the Son of God and what he went through. Here is the one, Christ, who calms the raging storms, who heals the sick, who drives out demons, now in deep need, as he faces the full horror of the prospect of the cross of Calvary. You see, what was bad enough was the spiritual, emotional, and mental and physical torture that was to come. What was even worse was the parade through the streets, the agony of the nails, and the slow, crushing asphyxiation. Worse still was the bitter taste of our sin, the weight of all sin ever. But worst of all would be the separation from the Father. And to think about that in the light of this moment of intimacy in the garden with his Father, we understand why. Deep bewilderment, solitary terror, an oppression of his soul. He felt, Jesus felt that he would die before he actually died. That was how oppressive this was. Jesus knew that people would leave him. He knew that people would deny him. He knew the demonic would ravage him from a place of jealousy and malice. But he also knew about that estrangement from the Father. That's why we have the power in that verse that he that knew no sin would become sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Jesus saw down that dark tunnel 
of where it was heading. There's a, a new Netflix film called Fall. I don't know if anyone's seen it. It's where two girls climb a radio tower of 2,000 feet, which is double the size of the Eiffel Tower, and are stranded there. Now, I hate heights, so I don't know why I watched this film. I was having a panic attack. And I think I fast-forwarded most of it, but I needed to see what happened at the end. And I won't spoil it for you. But I was watching this and trying to get some grasp or understanding to us about what was going on for Jesus in that moment. You know, he, it's like he was suspended in some remote point of the earth where every single cry falls on deaf ears. Imagine climbing so high and you're shouting out, help, help, and there's no way to get down. And it's like you're suspended there with the anguish and the anxiety that completely and utterly alone with no one to help. So here we have this man, the God-man Jesus, deeply distressed, overwhelmed because of the impending moment of the cross. Now the horror of the cross we'll be looking at, and that's horrific, but what was worse is the wrath of God, the wrath of God being placed on Jesus. You see here in the text, it says the words, the cup of suffering. That's what Jesus is referring to, the cup of suffering is referring to the wrath of God being placed. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Yes, for the sins of the world, but to absorb the wrath and the judgment of God. Jesus is now the guilty one. You see, wherever sin exists, God's judgment cannot but be focused on it. Otherwise, think about it, God would have to reach a compromise with sin. But now we have, as it's placed on Christ at the cross, that Jesus is now responsible for all. God's wrath is now revealed against Jesus. And so Jesus took it all. And this isn't some abstract thing. This isn't some abstract word, sin. This is, this is everything that I've ever done and everything that I've ever said and everything that I've ever thought and everything I will think or say or do and the sins of commission, the sins of omission, whether it was done on purpose or through negligence. But it's all our human pride all our rebellion against God, all our lust and hypocrisy and violence and untruth and hatred, the judgment that we deserve, that I deserve, was placed upon him. And he's looking down at this, at the cross. And so we have this combination of the proximity of sin upon Jesus and the absence of God. Can there be an ever worse place the proximity of the sins of the world in the absence of God the Father. On the cross, God's supreme holiness and beauty and perfection clashes with the supreme evil of sin, causing this anticipatory upheaval in the Redeemer's soul. 
Let me give you another practical kind of illustration. In places like the Alps, you have often where cold air approaches from the north and it meets a mass of hot air from the south. And that atmosphere, those conditions, is so disturbed that it causes thunder and lightning and there even the mountains of the Alps tremble. This was so huge, what was going on here. This was going to be so huge what Jesus was going to do on the cross that it caused such a tremble and an earthquake. Rebecca Manley Pippa, one of my favorite authors, says this, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Could there have been any other way? The opposite of love isn't anger, it's indifference. It's just that place of where I don't care anymore. Even in relationships, may think about some of you who are in marriages and, and you counsel people and say, I, I hate my husband or I hate my wife. And I'm thinking, that's bad, but it could be a lot worse. It could be I don't care anymore. See, at least anger and hate are expressions of a deep sense of care and love. It's just been projected in a wrong way. But indifference, apathy, lukewarmness, it doesn't really matter anymore. That is the worst type of feeling in a relationship. Anger is what love looks like when people that love cares about are oppressed. Miroslav Volf, the philosopher and theologian said this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in former Yugoslavia, the region from which I came. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over three million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed by people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? by refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is 
love. The prospect of this for Jesus was so huge to see in verse 35 that he falls to the ground. And he's asking the Father, is there any other way out of this? Just think about it for a moment. He's, he's kind of like the grief cycle. He's at a place of bargaining. He's pleading. He's saying, come on. Is there any other way? And there's this incredible moment of intimacy which is often born in trial. He references here God as Abba, which is intensely intimate language, intensely personal, but he doesn't just say Abba. He says, and this is the only time in the Gospels where he uses the personal pronoun of my father. My father. So this is incredibly intimate. And I've found, and I'm sure you have, that in moments of profound sorrow and trial and testing and doubt, it's in those moments that God draws near. So close. I've often despised the trials, but what it's produced in me, I've longed for trials. I ask for them because of the intimacy you have with the Father in those moments because you've stopped depending on your own resources and you now look to him. And it's like there's no way out. I've only got him. And so because of that, he's my Abba Father, he's my Father, I know he can do it for others, but what about doing it for me? And you can only know that when you've been through the fire and you've come out like we, we, we looked at in the book of Daniel and you realize that Jesus was the fourth person. He was in the fire with you. And that trial for many, even in this room, is the oppression of the soul through depression. You know, this passage we have here is known as the Magna Carta on depression. And I'm sure many of you have gone through moments and seasons, maybe longer, maybe you're here right now and you're going through significant long-term depression. And to quote the priest and the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, who says this, comforter, where? Where is your comforting? That's how you feel when you are depressed. Comforter, comforter, where is your comforting? When we're depressed, we're unresponsive often to pleasure. We are unmoved by beauty. We are unamused by life. We resent other people on their Instagram pictures having the time of their lives where quietly we just wanna die inside. We need to understand, and for those of you today who are going through that, you need to understand we have one in Christ who understands depression. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. That is the beauty, one of the beautiful angles of the gospel is that we have in Christ one who is interceding 
praying for us before we even pray anything. He's already praying for us. One who understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Christ's abandonment can be profoundly reassuring to us when we go through moments like that. When we go through what is called the dark night of the soul, to know that God loves us even in our joy and even in our sorrow. The silence by God, like for Jesus, by the Father, does not equate to to sin in your life which you're just trying to go through and make sure there's no blockage to the Father. It doesn't come from our defiance often or our faltering faith. None of this implies the absence of God. None of it. Because we always have the hope of the resurrection. Jesus needed his friends in this moment. When he was pressed down and being squeezed and there was no one to lift him up, he went to his friends and they were asleep. Now this isn't some modern day parable that we should all feel guilty about not having a quiet time every day. It's not what it means. Jesus just needed his mates. He could have called down legions, 40, 50, 60,000 angels in that moment, but he actually just needed the rugged hands of a fisherman to hold him and hug him and be with him, not give any answers, not give any solutions. How many of you men out there are good at giving solutions to your wives? I'm brilliant at it. But it's usually not helpful, one bit. Jesus is in the most vulnerable place. He needs help. He needs them most right now. It was companionship that he wanted. And church, our faith, our faith must be rooted in the context of family and community. It's not about attending church with a religious facade and pretending that everything is okay. It's about being real and authentic. You can be present in a meeting but still emotionally absent. Church, we welcome the wounded and the broken and the vulnerable and those who don't have it all together. We must welcome the weaknesses of each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and seek not to be a stumbling block to their healing. Somewhere, someone today will be struggling And we may feel like God is absent or a million miles away. But he sent us, the church, to be like those rugged hands of a fisherman and to hold you and to hug you and pray for you and stand with you. It's interesting that what energy Jesus is so low right now. 
but the energy that he does have, he uses, us, he uses to pray. He uses his breath to pray. He knew there was no other way. He's thinking, can we come up with something else? Not in a demanding way to his father, but just simply asking. And this is so powerful because our future, the fact that we're here today hangs on these words, not my will, but what you will. We would still be under judgment in the darkness and an eternity without God, but because he says, Jesus says yes to the Father, and the Father says no to Jesus, we are here today, washed in the precious blood of Jesus. The first man said no to God in the first garden in Genesis. But here in another garden, Jesus says yes to God and redeems and reverses the curse forever. The first garden was a garden of self-fulfillment. You can eat from any tree, but just not that one. And yet I want to be like God which is the root of all human sin. Setting ourselves up as kings and gods to fulfill ourselves, but the way of Christ in a culture of self-fulfillment where you do you and you have your truth and whatever you feel like you can be. It stands contrary to the way of Christ, which is to pick up your cross and to deny yourself and follow me. Three times Jesus here asks and no answer comes. And of course there is an answer in the lack of answer and the answer is no. Is there any other way? No. Your will be done. And friends, the next level of prayer for us as a church family is where we realign our wills to the will of the Father. You know, this appears to be the only time in the Gospels that Jesus asks for something himself and the Father says no. And there are stages of our prayer lives where it goes like, Lord, I don't want to do what you're asking of me, but I'm going to do it anyway. I remember many years ago, I've said it many times, but I remember in my formational years of being a disciple, I was going through a really difficult moment. I was wrestling. And I felt like the Lord speak to me through this text. You know, the flesh is weak. It is weak, but the spirit is willing. There's something deep within you. It may be only a small fraction where you know that his way is the right way. His way is the best way. It's painful and it's costly. Eugene Peterson said this, that prayer puts us at risk. (laughs) When we pray, we're at risk of maybe getting things that not all our own way, but just what the Father wants. So we must be careful about what we pray because we might not like the answer. In conclusion, here are six, I'm just going to read them out, I'm not going to unpack them, six defining marks of a Jesus people. Number one, they will be real. Number two, they will suffer. Number three, they will pray. 
Number four, they will be lonely but not alone. Number five, they will relinquish their will to his. And number six, they will never, never outgrow the gospel and the need for a savior. Sometimes, friends, we want the kingdom but without the king. We want the miracles without doing his will. But the starting point, I think it's timely. I was trying to think, God, Easter, Gethsemane, does this really work with being a Jesus people? But I felt like he whispered to me, the starting point, not the end point for a Jesus movement, is where we decide as a church, not my will be done, but yours. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Whole Vineyard podcast. We would love to connect with you and welcome you home to church. To find out more, go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash connect. And stay up to date with all that is going on in the life of our church. Go to wholevineyard.co.uk forward slash church news and sign up for our weekly mailing. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.